Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. Um, it's my privilege. Uh, I feel very special being uh, one of the only men in the room just to... It's extra bubbly in here. Um, so hopefully... Um, yeah, hopefully you had a chance just to kind of collect yourselves after whatever you were doing uh, just for a wonderful night. I know the Lord is um, truly going to just bless us, and um, we're about to ask his presence there. But just for a word of welcome to all of you, maybe um, if this is the first time to Sacred Heart, um, definitely welcome to Sacred Heart. Um, some of you already found the facilities. Um, as you came in, maybe from the front, uh, the restrooms, or to the right and left uh, before you enter the main doors, we also, if it kind of gets crowded, we have some over in the Parish Life Center. Um, tonight is is Ladies' Night. I'm super, I mean, I've always wanted to go to Ladies' Night. I haven't been, at, I haven't been to one in a while. You know, it's been about 17 years, but uh, it's old habit. It's like riding a bike, you know? So I would probably stay up here a lot longer than I should, uh, but I will be very self-disciplined so I can introduce Miss Katie McGrady. Um, so Ms. Katie uh, Prejean McGrady um, is a speaker, author, podcaster, and host of the Katie McGrady Show um, on Sirius XM, the Catholic Channel, which is a big deal. Um, she lives in Lake Charles, so just right down the road, she has two beautiful daughters, and uh, she is excited to be here with us tonight, and I'm super blessed to be here. Uh, just to kind of prepare for her talk, why don't we um, say a little prayer and ask uh, just the Lord's blessing upon our night, upon this space, and upon our speaker. Come, Holy Spirit. Uh, just come, come and freely move in this place. Come and, and move in our hearts. We give you permission just to speak to our mind, speak to our past, our present, and our future. To speak to our heart and maybe the places and areas that you, Father, want to love and heal and restore. Send your Holy Spirit upon us and reveal to us your Son, Jesus, in the many different ways in which he will be revealed to us tonight. Bless this space, send your angels down upon us, send Mary to be with us and guard us and guide us and pray for us. All you angels and saints, come and be with us and enjoy our company. Come and pray for us that something may be stirred in us for more. Lord Jesus, we ask all of this in your name, who live and reign forever and ever. Amen. Miss Katie McGrady. This was not a weird entrance. I'm sorry. I did not realize how far that walk was. <laughs> the lights turn up high. How are y'all? This is much more full than I realized when I went to the bathroom earlier. There was like a third of you. I'm going to move this. That's okay. I drove in earlier from Little Lake Charles, where we stole your beloved uh, father, Monsignor Provo. Was he Monsignor Provo? Um, and so these lovely people over there were asking me if I knew him. And I was like, yeah, we call him Papa Provo in my family, which I don't think he likes a whole lot. But my mom does his taxes, so I can get away with it. And my girls adore him. And my Rose, uh, she's five, she calls him Provo Bishop. 
in like at school because she's not, we have like drilled in her mind, you cannot call him Papa Provo in your school building when he visits. That would just not go over really well. I'm super excited to be here. I have to tell you, I've had a crazy January and February. And so I, no lie, totally forgot about this until last week when Heather emailed me to ask when I planned on coming. And I was like, oh, that's right, that's on Monday. Really glad I didn't miss it. It was just kind of a crazy January against my will. There was Seek and I had to go for my radio show. And then my husband and I got to go to France at the end of January, kind of spontaneously. So that was really cool. I'll tell you that story in a few minutes. Sometimes the Lord just like gives you a gift and goes, here's a free trip to Lourdes. Why don't you go? So that was amazing. And then I had a bunch of events in February. We were in Shreveport on Saturday. My daughter was very concerned I was not gonna be in the state of Louisiana tonight. And I said, no baby, I'm just like driving up the road to Lafayette and then I'll be right back, sorry, Broussard. And then I'll, I'll be right back. And so my husband texted me, he said, did you make it? I said, oh yeah, yeah, I'm here. Cause coming to Lafayette, coming to Broussard's not all that difficult. We come for your children's museum and for your Catholic bookstores, which are really cool. And for the lovely people. Well, my daughter doesn't fully understand what I do for a living. She knows mommy talks, but she doesn't always understand like the context of me talking. So last year for career day, she goes to St. Margaret's and Lake Charles Little Catholic School. We're still in temporary buildings from the storms, three years strong, and we still have trailers going, but the kids don't know the difference. It's all good. FEMA just hasn't come through yet. Y'all know that reality. So, so we have career day, so all the parents come for pre-K-4 and they have like a public speaking component in their, their fourth quarter in pre-K-4. So up goes Christian and little Christian Terrio. Hi, my name is Christian and this is my daddy Doug and he's an engineer. And so everybody claps for Christian's daddy Doug because everybody knows what an engineer does. Up comes Lincoln Shoemaker because our millennial friends have named their kids stuff like Lincoln because, you know, that's what we do as millennials. We decide to take last names and put them as first names. And so Lincoln points at his daddy Jared and he goes, this is my daddy Jared and he's a lawyer. So everybody claps for Jared because everybody knows what a lawyer does. And up comes little Rose, curly haired McGrady. She goes, hi, my name is Rose and this is my mommy Katie. And she talks to the wall while she's alone. And everybody turns and looks at me and my husband, and I'm like, I work in radio, I promise it is a real job. And I look out a window, I don't talk to a wall, there is a window, so I talk to the grass. <laughs> and Squirrely Sam, who entertained me for a solid hour today. I have a radio program on Sirius XM 129 from one to three central every afternoon. We talk about everything from pop culture to faith. Today we took calls about Eucharist and Eucharistic adoration and we had a guy call in from Boston and I can never say Eucharistic adorer anymore. I have to say Eucharistic adora because that's how the Bostonites say it. And it's just like been playing in my head for the past three hours. Like that's how they say Eucharistic adoration. It's a great job. Never thought that that's what I would do though. I was a teacher for five years unceremoniously fired against my will when I was six and a half months pregnant after just having bought my first home and my husband was fired. That's a fun story I'll tell you in a little while. Jesus really came through there. And that's not sarcastic, he really did. But I feel like a lot of my life, I always was kind of, and you maybe feel this too, like running to the thing that would define me. Like I was Katie the youth group kid and I went to all the youth group stuff. I was Katie the kid in speech and debate that would compete. I spent so much time at Turlings and St. Thomas More and Lafayette High. Like I think most of my childhood memories from high school are in the halls of those high school competing against people that all thought we were like the coolest thing ever because we'd memorized a speech. I, I, I went to college and I was gonna get this theology degree and I was gonna be Katie the youth minister and the educator. And then I was Katie, the teacher who was fired, and now I'm Katie who's unemployed, who's gonna talk about Jesus and travel the world. 
And then Katie, the speaker who can't travel because of this little thing called COVID and like so much of life, I realized really up until just a few years ago, I spent defining my life by what I did. And the time that we have together tonight, which the most important part of is not me talking to you, but we time with Jesus in the Eucharist so we can all become adoras, like the Bostonites who called into the show today. So much of our life, I think we spend thinking about what defines me rather than who. And what do people think of me and what I do and what makes me externally successful as opposed to who am I in the eyes of the creator who loves me into existence? And I think it's, it's just absolutely genius that we get to have this time together as women. I've never seen a parish mission done this way, and I'm like going to tell everybody in the world that this is how you should do it. Women on one night, guys on the other night. You don't have to find childcare. Dad can watch the kids tonight. And tomorrow night, you can just turn on a Bluey episode and drink some wine and like think about all the things we talked about here. I'm giving you permission to do that. That's what I plan on doing. But it's so valuable, I think, to think about our identity as Catholic women because I, I, I'm deeply convinced that the world needs a healing of Catholic femininity, that the church needs a new, renewed, revived understanding of the female genius, the feminine genius within the life of the church. And I think it starts by recognizing that what defines us is not what we do, not the externals we produce, not that the success that we can point to, not the job description our four-year-old gives us in a pre-K-4 classroom, that isn't entirely inaccurate, but isn't exactly what I do, but that what defines us is our existence as a daughter of the King Most High, a sister to one another, and a mother to the world. I don't think I really truly understood my feminine identity, what it truly meant to be a woman until I was pregnant. And that's not to say you don't understand who you are as a woman until you're pregnant. It's to say that that's when I didn't really fully get it. You know, some women are pregnant and they, they glow, they glisten, they like are living their best life, creating a child. And I did not glow, I sweat. And I, I was not like living my best life. I was miserable because I thought it was a good idea to get pregnant in December and be pregnant in Southwest Louisiana all summer long. That baby popped out in August, thank God. I'm not sure I could have survived a little bit longer. But I, like I said, I lost my job in May of 2017, very unceremoniously. The Lord provided, we had savings. Things were good, but I was kind of at rock bottom because this piece of my identity had been taken from me. And my husband was very able, you know, very quickly able to find a new teaching job at a charter school in Lake Charles. And I decided I'm just not going to go back into the classroom. I'm going to live Catholic mom life as soon as this baby's born. And I'll travel and speak when people ask me to. But this could be really good for us. But it was a really low summer because, again, this thing that had defined me, this education that had defined me, was gone for me. And I arrive in August of 2017. I know I'm due at the end of the month. Finally, we've arrived at that ninth month of pregnancy where all of your energy is zapped and everybody is your enemy, including the man who got you pregnant in the first place. And you're just like miserable, but also excited, nesting, but like really tired. You just want to watch The Office on repeat, but then stupid things in the show make you rage or cry. You're just in this weird phase of life. And we go in for our, one of our last appointments with our OB. And I don't know if any of you know Lake Charles or like know the medical scene in Lake Charles. It ain't much to write home about, let's just say that. 
And I had an OB, he was really good, his name was Dr. McAlpine. Anybody know Dr. McAlpine? Yes, no, maybe so. Dr. McAlpine has Asperger's, which is really great for an OB because he doesn't make eye contact with you, which is sometimes the last thing you want to do <laughs> in an OBGYN office, but it's sometimes like the thing you need in your last month of pregnancy. So I really liked him, but every now and then you just like didn't know are we, is this a serious issue? Is everything okay? He was very deadpan a lot of times. So we're sitting in there and he proceeds to just say like, everything looks great. You know, baby's measuring good and, and your weight is good and, uh, but you're leaking a little bit of amniotic fluid. So we're gonna have to induce like in the next 10 days. And he says this all very, like I even just gave it inflection, but that's not how he said it. And I went, wait, what was that? Like everything's good, but I'm leaking fluid like that's not good like I've seen Google this is not <laughs> and he said yeah so he pulls literally like old school doctor pulls a calendar out of his back pocket and like five days are x'd off he's like I'm in Denver so you can't choose those days but from this set of days when would you like to have your baby so I chose August 24th because it was the day after St. Rose of Lima's feast day my daughter's patron and the day before the crowning of Mary which was our parish's patronal feast so I was like this is great we'll have like three days of cake when this baby's born so we go in at midnight and they set me up on the Pitocin drip which is God's gift and curse to humanity that like we can induce labor but it's 10 times more painful when it's drugs that make it happen and so from like 1 a.m. to 7 a.m., I'm doing okay. There was a Hunger Games marathon on AMC, so that's on, which was very appropriate when you're birthing a child. And like 7.30 or so, Tommy goes out to get a cup of coffee, and like that's right when the first real contraction hits. And I'm a wimp, I'm a thousand percent a wimp. Like I don't even like splinters, blood makes me squeamish. And so like I endured, I was pretty proud of myself. I lasted for like 90 minutes of Pitocin contractions before I begged them to bring in the nurse anesthetist for an epidural, which was again, God's gift to humanity. The next time I just walked in backwards, it was like, stick me anywhere you want. Cause I had the best nap of my life after that epidural, like flying high in my world. About noon, they came in to check on me. I still wasn't all the way dilated. And again, deadpan McAlpine like checks everything. And he's like, yeah, okay, we got a little ways to go. Like walks out, never see him again. <laughs> I go back to sleep. Hunger Games is still playing. Tommy goes out and gets food, comes back, doesn't bring it in. Thank God I would have murdered him. I think if he brought food into the room, he comes back in and like 3.15 or so, all of a sudden the nurse like rushes over to me. I think she forgot to check my cervix at some point. She checked, she was like, oh, you're at 10, it's time to get ready. Like the stirrups pull out and they like push the bed up and you're like in this weird V shape, but I couldn't feel anything. And like as soon as the nurse like does this crazy concoction with my body, the nurse anesthetist comes in like real casual. And he's like, how you feeling? And I said, like, I thought I was answering the question, like, how are your emotions? Which I should have realized is not what any nurse anesthetist is asking you in a delivery room. So I said, I don't know, I'm like, I'm a little nervous, I'm a little anxious, I'm feeling the pressure. Feeling the pressure was his clue to top off my epidural. And I go numb from the armpits down. Which is great until you're trying to push out a child. So I start pushing at 3.30, I push for about an hour, nothing is happening. Dr. McAlpine is about as encouraging as you would expect. Push, one, two, three, four. There's just a swarm of nurses around me, including one who thought it was a good idea to give me a hand massage with lavender oil. 
in the midst of birthing a child. So I am vomiting from the smell while trying to push a kid out. My husband is the consummate birth coach, just like rallying. You got this, you got this, one, two, three. And at one point I turned to him and said, I need you to tone it down. Because it was just too much. And he had a lot of coffee and everybody could smell it. So like 4.30 on the dot, eight nurses come into the room all at once. And I realize what's about to happen. They're gonna take me out for a C-section because this kid's not coming out. And I turn to Tommy and I grip his arm. I think there's still a mark from the, the strength upon his arm. And I said, you have one job and it is to make sure they do not take me out of this room. And he's like, well, you know, and I was like, no, you have one job. We're not gonna well you know this. Like I was weirdly calm in this traumatizing moment. So he looks up over the bed, like at Dr. McAlpine and Dr. McAlpine nods and shrugs and like four minutes later, out comes Rose. Don't know what he did down there, felt it like 24 hours later, but he did something, out came the baby. Out comes this gunky little child. They don't tell you how gunky they are and how alien-like they are. They're yours and you love them, but no one else does, right? Like it's just this weird little package of a human. They give her to me, Tommy cuts the cord, they lay her on my chest, all the goop, all the gunk, this little tiny, they look like a baby bird, like looking around with their mouth. Tommy's leaning over the bed, we're having this intimate family moment. You know, lavender oil nurse has walked away and the good one has come in. And we're just having, it was maybe like 30 seconds to a minute total feels like eternity and all of a sudden I started to feel like I was passing out you know that feeling where like the black comes up over your eyes and you just feel like you're falling and it was because my blood pressure was going haywire because I had all of this epidural coursing through my body and have gone through this massive trauma so I say as I'm holding my child in a hospital bed there's no way I can fall but I say I'm going to drop her someone take her and so the nurse looks up at Tommy, who's standing next to me, and goes, Dad? It's the first time anybody would call him Dad. He was like the Grinch. His heart swells three sizes. He'd watched every birthing video, had read every birthing book, went to the birthing class alone at the hospital because I had been traveling that summer, and I was like, I don't have time for this. You can go learn the breathing methods if you'd like. So he, this is his moment, right? Like they're gonna hire him to be a birth coach in the rest of the hospital. He stands up straight, rips his shirt open, takes gunky rose and puts her on his chest. Cause he knows the importance of skin to skin. We're not gonna swaddle this kid, right? And the nurse lowers the head of the hospital bed. Cause she knows that I probably need to be flat cause I need to get my blood pressure back up. But she does not communicate this to Dr. McAlpine on the other end of the table. And so as she lowers the hospital bed, I hear a splash and an uh-oh. I said, is there another one down there? Cause I had no idea what's going on. I have no recollection of that. Tommy swears I said it. Unbeknownst to me, Dr. McAlpine had delivered the placenta and it dropped on the floor right as she lowered the hospital bed. You didn't think you were coming to your parish and I ain't gonna hear placenta stories, but <laughs> welcome to your parish mission. They already paid me so I can say what I want. So they lower the hospital bed, the placenta comes out, Dr. McAlpine goes, uh-oh, it looks like a Stephen King novel has erupted in this hospital room and the door opens and in walk my mom and dad. <laughs> and my dad just backs up and leaves, he is not about to see the business end of his firstborn child. And my mom has walked into this chaos. She sees her firstborn grandchild on her shirtless son-in-law 
Her daughter passed out in a hospital bed with Carrie all over the floor. And I, I am out of it. Like, I am in that phase of I'm not fully conscious, but I heard her say it cut through it all like a knife. I heard her say, how can I help? Which is a really tender thing for a mom to say in a moment of chaos, except my mom is a CPA. She's the least qualified person <laughs> in the hospital. What is she going to do, grab a mop and, like clean up this medical waste, but like she steps in and sees this chaotic scene and instantly wants to help. So Dr. McAlpine, my mom also does his taxes, he says, Marie, go to the, you know, go to the head of the bed. She comes to the head of the bed. She, she, she looks at Tommy, she's like, can I take a peek? Like looks at the baby, comes over to me, starts dabbing my forehead, kind of brings me back to consciousness as they get my blood pressure under control. The room gets mopped up and they give me the baby back. All of this probably took place in like five minutes and it felt like a year. And I don't think I'll ever forget that moment of the chaos and the mess and the noise and in walks my mother. And the first thing she thinks to say is, how can I help? Four words that I think define the feminine heart. That even in a room where we are not fully qualified, <laughs> we step in knowing that there's probably something that we can do. Years later, I asked her about this, right? Like when I finally fully processed the trauma of my first child's birth. Right before my second child, who was born in between two major hurricanes while we were evacuated to Pineville, Louisiana. So do we have a third? No, because I think it might end the world. And we're just like waiting for a clear sign from Jesus that a global pandemic and two hurricanes and a flood and a snowstorm are not gonna happen. And I said, Mom, you asked how can I help when you like walked into that hospital room? Like, did you legitimately think they were gonna let you do something? And she said, no, but I, I didn't think I was allowed to be in there unless I offered to do something. And it, it has lived rent-free in my brain, what she said in response to that question. I didn't think I was allowed to be in there unless I, I was like willing to do something. It is written into us by the world that the cost of entry is doing. And yet we are created by God who created us simply to be. We are created by a God who fashioned us and breathed life into us in his image and into his likeness, not because he had some ready-made agenda for us to complete, do these things and then you can exist, but because he desires for us to be here because he loves us. And it is the hardest thing for women especially to comprehend that we are loved simply because we are. Because in a lot of ways in our life, we haven't been loved simply because we are. We've been used, we've been taken advantage of. People haven't seen us as we actually are. They've tried to create us as they want us to be. Friends, lovers, coworkers, bosses, sometimes the church, it feels like people sometimes approach us as projects to manage, problems to fix, or people to get stuff done. And so we take all of that and we, we use that woundedness of I've been used, I haven't been loved as I am, and we think that that's how God sees us. That God desires to approach us as a project, as a problem, 
or as a person that he can get something out of. And we create God in this image of the world rather than recognizing that I am in his image, which is perfect love, which is abundant and fruitful and merciful. Love that seeks to simply give, not love that looks to use. You know, not long after Rose was born and I started going back onto the road, I kind of fell back into the same pattern that I had been in before she was born, which was, oh, what I do is what defines me. I'm a mom, and I've got a cute little baby with a button nose, and I'm a wife, and I maintain this home, and I get to travel, and I get to speak. People hand me microphones, and I get to talk about Jesus. And they pay me for it, and it's going to be pretty good, right? And so 2018 and 2019, I traveled collectively 350,000 miles across the world, I went to England five times. I got to go to Canada about a dozen times. I went to Australia, all over the continental United States and Alaska. I got to see the world talking about Jesus. Nearly ruined my marriage, and I'm pretty sure it's why my daughter likes my husband more than me. But you know what? I was doing what I thought Jesus wanted me to do. Got pregnant in January of 2020 on time. It's what we wanted to do. I got back from Australia. We started trying for number two because I can ordain the plans of God, right? NFP worked in my favor for once. Rose was a peak plus five baby. Shouldn't have happened, but it did. And here comes Claire. Some of people are like doing the math in their head. They tell you it's not supposed to happen that way, but it did. She needed to exist, and the Lord provided for us, and she exists. So I get pregnant in January of 2020. I'm on the road. I'm still doing the travel speaker thing. Rose is in a great pre-K-2 program. Life is good. I'm doing what I know the Lord wants me to do, and I'm satisfied that this is what God has invited me to do. And March 13th, 2020, what happens? The world closes. Friday the 13th, we should have all seen it coming. (laughs) I was flying back from St. Louis, Missouri on the 11th. COVID tests were not a thing yet, and my mom somehow managed to find a place that would test me because she was convinced I'd gotten it on an airplane where she told me I had to wear a turtleneck so I could pull it up over my nose while I was traveling home. My mom's a CPA, like I've mentioned a couple times, and all the CPE like coursework had been talking about the supply chain. So she like knew this was coming. She made us all go to Sam's and buy like months of groceries and laundry stuff. And we hoarded toilet paper. I'm not proud of it, but we had it because my mom told us to. So I get home, the world closes March 13th, and we just kind of assumed, we all just kind of assumed, right? What was it, 10 days to slow the spread, two weeks to slow the spread, next thing we know it's June and everything is still shut down. And somewhere in between March and June, I was just, I entered into a very deep depression. I'm pregnant, my husband can't come with me to any of these appointments. I have a two-year-old who's bouncing off the walls, a husband who's trying to e-teach to inner city students who don't have computers or internet. I can't travel anymore. The thing that I was good at, the thing that I knew how to do, and so we tried to do these conferences online, and they were awful. We all pretended they were good, but they weren't. They were really bad. And in May of 2020, there was just one morning I didn't want to get out of bed. I just laid in bed, pregnant and and miserable and sad and, and lonely and annoyed and Tommy just kind of let me lay in bed. I had the pregnancy card. That was really nice. I could just kind of stay in there and watch stupid Netflix shows. And he finally made his way into the room. I think it was like 10.30 or so. And he said, hey, you got to get up. You got to get up. Like, you don't have to stay in the house. Like, you can just take the car and drive around or, like, you know, go for a walk somewhere. But, like, you got to get up. You're scaring me. You got to get up. So I got up. I showered. I, you know, brushed my teeth and threw some clothes on and got in the car and and just started driving. Lake Charles is not very big. There's not a whole lot of places to go. (laughs) 
And I found myself pulling into the parking lot of Our Lady Queen of Heaven Catholic Church, where I grew up. I was youth minister there for years. My husband and I got married there. We've had a 24-hour adoration chapel since 1993. And Father Danny Torres, very, very clever guy, had figured out that if we moved the adoration chapel to our day chapel and opened up the doors, we could like kind of get away with it being like an outdoor chapel. So the adoration chapel stayed open. And I walk in, it's like 11 on this particular day. So like right at the cusp of when an adorer has like traded out their hour. And I walk in and I have nothing with me except my car keys. Left my cell phone in the car, my wallet, nothing with me. And that's not how I usually go to adoration. I usually go to adoration with like, with stuff. You do too, probably. A Bible, some sort of spiritual book, Bible in a year queued up on my phone, right? Like I'm, I'm ready to go into adoration to do something with Jesus because I'm a doer, I'm not just a beer. And I walk in and there's this older lady sitting in the front row and she sees me come in and she went, oh good, are you gonna be here for a while? And I'm like, um, no, and like we're like, 10 feet apart from each other, so I don't think she can fully hear me. And anyway, she gets up and leaves, and now I'm in the Adoration Chapel alone with Jesus. And you can't leave him, because you have to babysit him. So I'm sitting there with nothing. I've got my car keys. Don't even have a rosary. And again, it's the time of COVID. Remember, we're like wiping down our groceries. So there's no like anything in the chapel, because you know, we might make each other sick. So it's just me and Jesus hanging out. And if you've never had the chance to just be with the Lord alone, Highly recommend it. Don't get like stuck in there because someone abandons their holy hour for who knows why. But like sometimes it just needs to be you and the Lord and nothing else. No agenda, no helps, no forethought of what you're going to say. So I sat there and I did the like passive aggressive thing like I'm here, Jesus. And then it kind of becomes, I'm, okay, I'm here. Like are you going to do something godly? And then like nothing's happening. Like I don't feel like Jesus is speaking to me and I'm not like feeling that high that would happen at a Steubenville conference. And I like, I don't know what's supposed to be going on. And I'm like, when is the last time I actually prayed? And I find myself getting angry at the Lord, which I think is a valid feeling at times. I don't recommend yelling at a monstrance like I proceeded to do, but again, nobody was around and there's not a camera in there. So truly the Lord is the only one who knows this happened until I started telling this story across the country. But I just started to tell Jesus everything that he had done wrong, which is a really fun thing to do because you realize how selfish and arrogant of a person you are. As you describe to the king of the universe and the Messiah, this is how you screwed everything up. Let's count the ways. One, a pandemic. Two, a pregnancy in a pandemic. I feel like you gave me clear signals it's time for another baby. A job that is now over, even though like you were leading me all over the world to talk about the gospel. A husband who's miserable, who's questioning his career choices, even though he's halfway through a master's. A two-year-old who has wild social anxiety now because she thinks everybody's gonna make her sick because that's what the Sesame Street special told her. Like all of the things that you have done and then it gets really personal, right? Like Jesus, and I just started to like needle away at the Lord. And it slowly started to dawn on me that what I was mad at was that I thought I had done everything Jesus wanted me to do. And yet still everything was going wrong. And I remember vividly feeling this anger, this rage, 
to where like if I had been, I think, a lesser person, I don't know like what would have happened, but I, I yelled, I just viscerally rage yelled, I just don't know what you want from me. What do you want from me? Which is a really harsh thing to ask of Jesus. What do you want from me? As if he's an employer or a boss who's gonna give you an agenda list. These are the things you have to do so that I will love you. That's how I was approaching the Lord. What do you want from me? I did all this stuff and still everything like this happened. I did all those things and still you closed the world and ended my career and made my kid anxious. I did all this, what do you want from me? And I sat there in this rage. I'm sure you've all felt this before. You have done what you feel like God asked you to do. You have gone to the places where the Lord has asked you to go. You have welcomed the child even when you felt completely and totally tapped out. You walked away from whatever it was that you thought was gonna bring you satisfaction. You agreed, you volunteered, you showed up. Whatever it is that you feel like you've done and yet still you feel, what do you want from me? And I felt the rage all of a sudden just totally settle. It was like a fire just went out. You know when they put the little thing over the candle at Mass on Sunday? That was always the fun thing to do. I'm a recovering female altar server. That was always my favorite thing to do, was blow out the candle with the little taper thing. And it felt like the rage just got tapered out. And instantly, you know what velvet feels like? Like that smooth, heavy, but like at the same time, like you just like want to wrap up in it. It felt like velvet slowly started to wrap around me. I've only ever felt this sensation a handful of times in my life, and I knew what was happening. This velvet just wraps around me, and I heard crystal clear, Katie, I don't want anything from you. And it's hard to hear Jesus say, I don't want something from you, as if you're not good enough. Oh, he doesn't want anything from me. But I'm, I'm hearing this and I'm feeling this, this comfort and I'm feeling this holding close. I don't want anything from you. Katie, I don't want anything from you. I want something for you. I want something for you. And that right there is the biggest fundamental shift that you and I have to make. That Jesus does not ask something from us, but that he wants something for us. And what he wants for us is nothing but our good. What he wants for us is a plan of perfect peace. What he wants for us is to know that we are loved and we are worthy of a love that the world can never fully give us, so we should stop looking for it here but reorient ourselves to receive it from him so that we can then step into the world and love in the way that it needs. If, if Jesus does want anything from you, it's your heart so that he can give to you the love that you desperately need so that you fully understand how valuable and precious and unique you are, that no one sees you as he does, that no friend no spouse, no relationship, no employer, no casual acquaintance, no speaker could ever truly, fully show you the love that he can. And we run from it. We run from what God has for us because we know that if we receive what the Lord has for us, something has to change. If I know that God has for me nothing but the best 
in mind, that the Lord has for me his good, that means I have to set some other things down in my life so that I have an open hand to receive. That I stop grasping at what I think I need to have so I can do something for him and open hands so I can receive something from him. That the question should never be, what do you want from me? But Lord, what do you want for me? And I'm ready to receive that. And yet nine times out of 10, we walk into the chaos, we walk into the noise, and we don't think, how can the Lord give to me in this moment? We walk into the chaos, we walk into the mess, we walk into the noise, and we say, how can I help? And there's nothing wrong with wanting to help. There's nothing wrong with desiring to be the fixer. What's wrong is the assumption that we can do that without him. What's misguided is this belief that that somehow earns me entry, as opposed to the value of my simple existence. And yet, so often, our simple existence, the world tells us, isn't enough. You have to buy this or do that or purchase this. You have to participate here or go there or be part of this group. You have to follow these people on Instagram, and you have to have this particular type of filter, and you have to volunteer in that particular way. And Catholic femininity is painted as this project that we all have to take on, as opposed to a pursuit of your unique life that your journey to heaven and your pursuit of the feminine genius will not look like the person's next to you, nor should it. Because if God wanted cookie-cutter Catholic women, that's what he would have done. But he didn't. And he would never. Because each one of us occupies a unique and particular place in the mind of God, loved in a unique and particular way, able to be daughter and sister and mother in only the way that you can to receive what God only has for you so that you can give the world only what you have to give. Just this past weekend, my family and I went up to Shreveport for a youth conference. It was the first time the Diocese of Shreveport has had any sort of youth event since 2016. And the last time my husband and I were there, we were engaged. And now we're back and we've got two little kids. So a lot of life has happened. And my five-year-old, Rose, who is a bubbly, outgoing, excited little kid, begged to go on stage to sing to all of the big kids, and she sang a rousing rendition of Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. There's a reel of it up on my Instagram. Go watch it. It's, it'll, it'll, just, it'll tug at your heart screens, strings. Meanwhile, my two-year-old refused to leave the apartment for like the first four hours of the day. And part of me wanted to be annoyed, right? I've got one kid who doesn't want to be around people, because again, she's a pandemic child and she didn't see faces for the first nine months of her life. And I've got a five-year-old who loves every human being she encounters because she remembers what it was like when she was little and then the world closed for a little while, so now she wants to be around everyone. And I wanted to be annoyed. And then I asked the Lord, it was, a, it was an intentional prayer as the day was getting started, Lord, soften my heart to see the uniqueness of my kids. And I'm willing to do that for my children, but I'm not willing to do it for myself. I'm sometimes not willing to do it for the people I encounter or interact with. We're scared of the ways that we each uniquely exist because we somehow think that maybe we'll let each other down or worse, let God down. We're worried that someone's gonna look at us and realize we're maybe faking it till we make it just a little bit and that they'll catch on to us. Scared that somebody might realize maybe we're a little bit of a fraud at times. But we're working on it, we're trying. We want to love Jesus with everything that we have. It's just sometimes really hard and I think there could be a lot of good done in this world and a lot of good done in this church if we just all stopped pretending that we were perfect and had it all together. 
and just admitted that in our imperfections, we are still loved. In our attempts to figure it out, the Lord still delights in us. In our desires to get it right, here's Jesus cheering us on, ready to give us what we need, not to succeed in the eyes of the world or each other, but to be more fully who he longs for us to be. This is one of the hardest things for us to grasp because it's a thing that the world rejects. It's one of the hardest things for us to live in in the church because it feels at times like this church doesn't always have space for us, although your church certainly does. It, it, it's, it's hard for us to believe that we are simply good because we exist when at times it just kind of feels like all we're ever doing is wiping butts and counters and noses. Sometimes all it ever feels like we're doing is, is picking up after the people in our lives who never see anything that we do or picking up the pieces of work because somebody failed and made a mistake and we have to go behind them and, and fix it. Picking up the pieces within a program or within a group or, or at a school or with your kids. I wish somebody had told me how much of my life would be spent wiping and picking things up and putting them back where they belong. You've been down so much as a mom. It's like really a great workout at times but then also this like unseen labor. And yet there's this shift I think that we're all called to make that in the unseen of our daily existence as women, God sees us. That in the sometimes I don't feel like this world appreciates or loves me as I am, the Lord does. And, and we treat that sometimes as like this consolation prize. But like really it's the love and approval and thanks of others that's the consolation prize. That it is the Lord's love that we should long to experience the most. That it is God's vision of us that we should long to live in the most. That it is the affirmation that we know we need that we could be the one to maybe give to that other person that we know and that we see is maybe struggling. That if I know I am loved, that I can look at the person next to me and realize they are loved. And maybe it's worth it to tell them. Maybe it's worth it to share that. Maybe it's worth it to live like every single one of us is seen as a beloved daughter of the King Most High and so we can treat each other like that. And then when we understand our daughterhood as held by the Father and loved because we exist, we can live in sisterhood not in a competitive jockeying way, but in an uplifting, supportive, I desire to love you and you desire to love me and together, Loved as we are, we can love one another and love others. And that sisterhood, it translates into a motherhood that can heal. A presence in this world that can give only what we are capable of giving. We struggle to understand our daughterhood because we've had some bad fathers. We struggle to understand our sisterhood because there's been some bad sisters. We struggle to understand who we are as mothers in every capacity because sometimes our moms just didn't do it the way we needed them to. And the only way to fully understand our daughterhood and our sisterhood and our motherhood is not to look to the human examples, good or bad, but is to look to the Lord and ask him to reveal to us this identity of our feminine heart. That the Lord looks at you and he delights in you. That he's excited to hold you close to his heart as a dad holds his newborn child, the moment the nurse looks at him and says, Dad, that as a sister, you can look at another person 
And you could be that voice of affirmation and support that they have desperately longed to hear. That you could be the one who steps into a moment of pain or hurt and care and heal and help because of your unique gifts and talents and abilities. That a woman who knows her daughterhood and lives valuable sisterhood and steps into the world with healing motherhood is a woman that is unstoppable. My daughter's obsessed with Girl on Fire lately because one kid sang it at the school talent show and she asks for it every morning and so we're rocking out to Alicia Keys on the way and it's like, if we all knew who we were, we would be girls on fire. That if we knew who we are, we would set the world ablaze. It's literally what St. Catherine of Siena said. A woman who understood the feminine heart better than most because she knew who she was in the eyes of God. And yet still, we struggle. Still, we think we can't walk into a room without saying, how can I help? Still, we, we live life just assuming that the cost of entry is me doing something, not simply being who the Lord makes me to be. I was really struggling with this last year. And so my spiritual director, we're in one of our spiritual direction sessions. He's a Dominican. He's a good, good guy. And he said, Katie, I have an assignment for you. And I said, okay, Father. And he said, I want you to go home, and every day for the next year, I want you to read Luke chapter 10, 38 to 42. Now, I didn't have my Bible on me. I didn't know what Luke 10, 38 to 42 was. I was thinking to myself, like, okay, yeah, I hope it's a good one. I get home, and I was so mad. Because Luke 10, 38 to 42 is the story of Martha and Mary. And years ago, my mom sent me this book when I was in college called Having a Merry Heart and a Martha World. And I hated that book. I hated it. If you liked it, you're wrong. It was terrible. <laughs> because here's this book that like convinced everybody, love like Mary and serve like Martha, as if Martha's not loving the way that she thinks she has to. Martha gets the short end of the stick. So I start reading it every day. And like day 10, I'm still reading it. I'm still mad at Father Patrick Mary, annoyed that he's giving me this assignment. He knows me better than I know myself. As they continued their journey, he entered a village where a woman whose name was Martha welcomed him. Notice Mary doesn't get the first notice. Martha does. Luke, by the way, is the best gospel writer. Some people say John. He's too frilly. Luke tells the story in order like you're supposed to. And then there's a sequel. So it like makes sense, right? So Martha, the consummate host, I'm convinced Martha was Cajun. She knew what she was doing, right? She welcomes him into the home. She has a sister named Mary, lazy, who sat beside the Lord at his feet, listening to him speak. So Martha welcoming, Mary sitting on her butt, right? Like, here's our, here's our stage, okay? Here's our stage. And then Luke describes Martha. I have spent a year with this passage, okay? Martha, burdened with much serving, and Luke is very particular in using that word burdened. And like you hear the word burdened and you just, you feel it, right? Like your shoulders kind of drop. You kind of get this like sinking pit in your stomach. You all left your houses tonight and maybe you're a little worried about what you're walking back into when you get home around 8.30. Like I told my husband, please just order pizza. Don't mess up any of the pots and pans. I will be back by nine. Like, I love you. Don't mess up the house. And I love my husband dearly, but like the burden, you feel it because you carry it all. Like I think the, the thing that I'm always surprised by is like the mental load of the female mind. You know, like a woman's brain is spaghetti and it's all connected and like for whatever reason I have my kids' social security numbers and birth dates and the doctor phone numbers and the allergies. Like I've got it all occupying a part of my brain that I'd love to give to something else, but I just simply cannot. Like they took it from me. 
the burden. And that mental burden, it eventually sometimes becomes this physical burden, right? It eventually becomes this spiritual burden. Last year, not long after this passage was assigned to me, they sent home this packet for Catholic Schools Week. And I love Catholic education. I'm a product of Catholic education. I taught in Catholic schools. I sent my children to Catholic schools. I hate Catholic Schools Week with every fiber of my being because they sent home this packet that somehow these dress-up days help me to more deeply understand the value of Catholic education. Like, I want the version of Catholic parenthood that's like, I'm opting out of that. Like, yay, Catholic schools, I wrote my check. I'm not sending her to school in a patriotic t-shirt today. It does nothing for anyone except drive me bananas. So home comes this packet, I pull it out, and I think to myself, this is just one more thing that's gonna get forgotten. And then like a light bulb, <gasps> we live in, in, at the time, 2022, and we have these phones in our pocket that we are constantly staring at. What if I make a shared iCal for us? And like we have a rose calendar and a Claire calendar and a home calendar. I'll even make like a house cleaning calendar. And like when something's messy, I'll like put it in the calendar and it'll notify the both of us. It'll notify me that it needs to be cleaned, right? So like home comes the papers. And so I diligently pull it out and I put into the calendar all of these dress up days. And they're on the rose calendar, which is hot pink. And they'll notify us both at 6.05 every morning. So here comes Catholic Schools Week, Monday, she goes to school in a silly hat, because again, Catholic identity. Tuesday, <laughs> Tuesday is red shirt day, and it's in the calendar, red shirt, 6.05 a.m. Tommy gets up with Rose first. I come into the kitchen usually around 6.30 with the two-year-old. She's my kid, we sleep in a little bit. We take it slow. And I emerge into the kitchen at 6.30, holding, at the time, my one-and-a-half-year-old on my hip, and Rose is happily sitting at the breakfast nook in her uniform, chowing down on her cereal, and I look over at my husband and he's standing at the sink in a red shirt and khakis looking like Jake from State Farm. And I look at him and he turns and says, good morning, babe, and he can see the rage on my face. I very slowly grab the phone off the counter and I, I just point at it. Like, I just didn't have to say a word. I just like pointed at it and he looked at me and he went, I understand the mistake that I've made. And he walked out of the room because for whatever reason, this grown man thought that when it dinged red shirt at 6.05, I'm gonna go put on my red shirt, right? And like my husband wakes up at 4.30 a.m. So he went and changed into the red shirt at 6.05. I, I blew a gasket, I'm not proud of it. I set my one and a half year old down and followed him into the bedroom and said some things I'm not proud of, but Oh my gosh, the burden, y'all. It's like little things. Red shirts on a Tuesday. This year for Catholic Schools Week, thank God they did like one day where they got to wear their spirit shirt and some fun socks. Maybe one of those teachers heard my women's talk somewhere, I don't know, but like passive aggressively, I'm trying to ruin all dress up days for kindergartners, they don't care. <laughs> burdened, we're burdened. Are you burdened? Think of the burden. Think of it, like what you mentally hold, what you physically do, what you emotionally keep space for in your life, there's a burden. And sometimes it just takes your lazy sister sitting next to Jesus to set you off. <laughs> and Martha, who has set out a wonderful spread for Jesus, you got the hummus, you got the olives, you got the pita chips. She probably washed his feet when he came in the door. And he is telling stories like Jesus does. He's probably like the perfect house guest. 
and your lazy sister is sitting there and she's doing that passive aggressive thing that every Cajun mom has done where she's like banging the pots and pans in the kitchen on Thanksgiving. Like it'd be nice if somebody helped me, right? Like Martha burdened with much serving, she goes to Jesus. It literally says in the scriptures, she came to him and said, Lord. I imagine there was some sass in it. Lord, <laughs> do you not care? Who? Like that's bold. To look at Jesus and say, Lord, do you not care? Like, what do you expect him to say? No. <laughs> Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me by myself to do the serving? Tell her, sorry, I've got hair on me. Tell her to help me. She is burdened and she goes to Jesus. Lord, do you not care? And she probably asked it, y'all, because like she really believed he didn't. She had convinced herself that she was unseen. She convinced herself that even with all of the helping and all of the serving and all of the doing, that she wasn't enough. Lord, do you not care? She felt so unloved. And yet in her feeling unloved, she went to the Lord which is pretty profound. Everybody says Mary is the one who loved Jesus the most, and sure, she sat there. But that wasn't a passive aggressive way of saying it, but I guess it kind of came across that way. I, one day when I hopefully make it to heaven, Mary and I are gonna have a very healing conversation. But Martha and I, we will just like speak unspoken words to one another, because we get it, we're sisters, right? But like Martha truly felt completely alone in a house full of people with the king of the universe. And she goes to him. She's bold enough to go to him and say, do you not care? Tell her to help me. When like at the end of the day, like Martha probably could have managed it all on her own and probably would have and would have not said a word and would have just held this wound in her heart that she didn't get to spend any time with Jesus because her sister didn't help. Probably would have just let it like eat away at her and do like the Irish do and hold it really, really close and then shove it down and one day she would die and like nobody would ever know, right? But like Martha, and I, I, I deeply believe this is a movement of the spirit in her life in this moment because even though the spirit had not yet descended, the spirit still certainly existed that there was this prompting in her heart, go to Jesus and tell him, tell him what hurts. Tell him what you lack, which is in this moment, not just physical help to wash the dishes and refill the drinks. Tell her to help me is Martha's cry. What do you want from me? I'm doing all of this. And it would just be nice to get a thank you. It would just be nice to get an add a girl. It'd just be nice to feel like this is valuable to someone. Lord, do you not care? You know, we hear that phrase another time in scripture. And it's when Jesus is taking a nap in the boat and Peter kicks him awake. Lord, do you not care that we're going to perish? And in that moment of exasperation, Peter's like desperately afraid that he's about to die. And here's Martha. Lord, do you not care? Being unseen, feeling unloved, that kills us slowly. It makes us feel like we have no place in this world. Nobody would even notice if we're not there. When I come home from travel, it's always really nice I'm annoyed when my house is messy when I come back from travel, but it's also kind of nice to know, like, they still need me. Like, they still need me to pull out that Dyson and do a good walk through the house. Like, I'm still required in this home. 
Martha just feels so unneeded and so unloved and so unseen. Lord, do you not care? And the Lord said to her in reply, it's the most tender moment in sacred scripture. I'm convinced of this. He goes, Martha, Martha. Mar and not like Marsha, Marsha, not like Brady Bunch, but like <laughs> Martha. Probably like Martha, look at me, Martha. Anytime Jesus uses somebody's name, it's important. We need to pay attention to this theologically. He changes Simon to Peter. Saul becomes Paul. There's a change of identity. He calls a demon out of somebody to heal them. It's because he has mastery over them. He doesn't change Martha's name. He just calls it twice. He knows her, and he sees her, and he wants her to look at him. Martha, Martha. He doesn't say, give me a refill. <laughs> he doesn't say, Martha, Martha, we need some more chips. He doesn't say, Martha, Martha, calm down, get over it, take a chill pill. Martha, Martha. And then he names what he sees because he's the Lord who sees all. He says, you are anxious and you are worried. He doesn't say your anxiety is getting the better of you. He doesn't say your worry is invalid. Clearly Mary is going to help you clean up. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry about it. It'll get clean, knowing full well that she's the one that's going to have to do it. Martha, Martha, look at me, look at me, look at me. You were anxious and you were worried about many things. I see that. And this anxiety and worry, it's not just about these dirty dishes. It's not just about this food that you're serving everybody. It's about so much. You're anxious and you're worried about many things. And then he invites her. There's need of only one thing. And then he points to the sister, the sister that she's been a little resentful of, the sister that I've poked a little fun at. There's need of only one thing, and it's what's happening right here, which is that Mary, who we have no idea of knowing whether or not she was anxious and worried, but she could have been. Mary, who might have been burdened by any number of things in her heart and in her mind. Mary, who might have had legitimate questions, and Jesus is there. Mary has chosen the better part. And what is the better part? It's the sitting down. It's the being, not the doing. It's not that Jesus Christ looks at us and says our names and calls out the anxieties and worries and snaps and takes them away. It's that Jesus Christ acknowledges them and says, that's who you are, sit down with me. That anxiety and that worry, I want you to sit with me with it. That burden, I want you to sit with me with it. That worry that you don't have a place, that you are not seen, known, and loved, that you are simply what you do, and if what you're doing is different, then somehow you no longer are who you are. All of that which is in you, I love that. Sit down with me. I see that. Sit down with me. I want to love you in that. Not to just take it away, but because it might become a little lighter because I'm going to hold it with you. It might not be the thing that defines you anymore because I'm gonna tell you how much I actually love you. Martha is invited to do the thing that is hardest for every woman. She's invited to let herself be loved. She's invited to let herself sit and not take care of everything else first. She's invited to step into a church in Broussard, Louisiana on a Monday night and simply be with no agenda, with no priority, with no expectation, but simply because Jesus would like to see you now. Simply because you are worth taking a moment to be loved by him. That there's nothing better that you could do 
then go up to Jesus and say, in your burden with much serving, Lord, do you not care? And hear him say, oh, I care. I care so much. And I want to do something for you. I want to hold you close. The hardest thing you will ever do as a woman, I'm convinced, is not give birth, is not be married, is not raise kids, is not pursue a career. The hardest thing we do as women is simply allow ourselves to be loved because we're often the ones doing the loving and the doing and the creating and the cleaning and the putting all together. And here's the creator of the universe who says, thank you, thank you for doing all that, great job. But like, can we just spend some time together? Can I just like tell you how great you are? How loved you are? How valuable you are to me? How precious you are in my sight? How everything that you are as a woman, that everything you are as a mother and as a sister and as a daughter, is unrepeatable, totally unique, and completely good as it is, and as you are. My little sister is entering the Sisters of Life in September. We're very excited. I hear you guys have some Sisters of Life from Lafayette, yeah, maybe? I don't know. They're great. I love them. I'm going to miss her a lot. It's not the easiest thing in the world to be preparing to say goodbye to your only sister. There's only the two of us. She is my best friend, and she won't have a cell phone after September, so that's fun. <laughs> Jesus and I have been having many words. <laughs> I guessed that she was actually discerning religious life. In June of 2021, I was doing an event in the Diocese of Arlington, Virginia, and so I went early. My sister was living in, in Washington, D.C. at the time, working on her uh, doctorate in canon law at the Catholic University of America. She's the smart one. I'm the funny one. She's the smart one. She would say she's the funny one, but it's canon law, so pff, not really. So she's, she's working on her dissertation coursework, right? She's ABD now. She's finishing it right now. We're about to have uh, coffee with Father Aquinas Gilbo, actually, definitely a Lafayette boy. And he's like walking down the street from uh, the Dominican House of Studies. And I just like jokingly said to her, like, oh, hey, let's hope he doesn't try to recruit you. And she went, that's not how it works, but it wouldn't be that hard. And I'm like, what did you just drop in this moment? And I said, um, are you, like, did you? And she was like, I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, great, this is wonderful. Like, you just dropped this massive bomb, and now we're about to have coffee with this Dominican, and I'm going to have to keep this in. So she doesn't say anything about it, obviously, for the rest of the time. We then proceed to go have dinner with some friends and drinks. We're back in our apartment, and I'm like, can we? And she was like, no, it's very personal. I'll give you more information when you need it. So I'm just like sitting with this, are you discerning? And I had this, again, call it the Holy Spirit, this sneaking suspicion that like, I think it might be the Sisters of Life. I have no reason of knowing why. I'd never met them at that point. I'd just like seen them from afar at conferences. But like I knew they were right up the street and she did the thing like when you have a crush on a guy, like you mention his name a handful of times. Like she'd mentioned them a couple times, like that she'd been going to their adoration chapel that they have that's open during the day. A month and a half later, she calls me. She was about to leave for a 10 day retreat with the Sisters of Life up in New York, a discernment retreat. All mom and dad knew was that she was going on a retreat. They didn't know it was a discernment retreat. I now know it's with the Sisters of Life that this is a discernment retreat. So for the next 10 days, I'm like anxiously anticipating that, okay, like is she gonna call me and tell me how it went? And the Sisters of Life had this process of application where like you have to request one, but they have to give you one. It's this mutual discernment. 
So on the last day, Mother Agnes has given her an application. It happened to be August 6th, the Feast of the Transfiguration, which is the day the Sisters of Life were actually founded, August 6th, when Mother Agnes took her first vows. Funnily enough, uh, August the 6th, 1993, is when Mother Agnes took her first vows. And August the 6th, 1993, is when my little sister was born. So God has a hand in all of this, right? She calls me and she says, Katie, I, like I've never felt more at home. Which again is kind of a hard thing to hear because like we grew up in a really great home and now you love them more than you love us. Jesus and I are working on it. It was really great to hear though. She sounded so happy. And so the application process begins and it's a very involved application process, right? There's a psychiatric evaluation and all these medical exams, but like the biggest part is the letter. She has to write like the spiritual biography and then she needs these recommendation letters. And so she asked me, her big sister, her only sister, to write her this recommendation letter. And I've written books, I've traveled the world. This was the hardest thing I ever had to write in my entire life. And so I mail it off. And about a month later, I was sitting in the Shipley's parking lot in Lake Charles, picking up donuts for a, a coffee date with the rosary group that I'm a part of. It's my day for donuts. My phone rings, it's an unknown number, New York. I answer it. Katie, hi, this is Mother Agnes. I'm like, I don't think nuns make phone calls very often. Is something wrong? Like, is my sister crazy and the psychiatric evaluation has revealed this and you're now calling me because you were a Columbia psychology professor once upon a time? And I'm like, oh, um, hi, sister. I mean, mother, like I've never talked to a superior of an order before. And she went, I just wanted to see how you're doing. And for the next few minutes, I mean, it was like maybe 15 minutes tops in the Shipley's parking lot in Lake Charles. I ate one of the donuts in the midst of the conversation. <laughs> I needed some comfort food. Mother Agnes just, she just wanted to check on my heart. Obviously like wasn't revealing to me how the application process was going with my sister and she doesn't know me. I'm the sister of a woman who might enter. And yet she still called me and in that 15 minutes as our conversation unfolds, she said, you know, I just want you to know that I'm praying for you. I'm, I'm praying for your mother. I know it's kind of been hard for her to process this. I'm certainly praying for Laura. Praying for your girls. And this is when I realized, oh, they know us. Because, like, we're the ones who call my girls the girls. Like, anybody could call them that, but, like, we colloquially call them the girls. And here's this woman who I've never met literally across the country who's been walking with my sister through this discernment process. And, like, she knows that we call them the girls. Like, she knew her and she knows me and she cares. Like, she cares enough about me to call me to ask how I'm doing. And so, like, I'm starting to get a little emotional on the phone. And she went, Katie, are you okay? I can hear. And I said, yeah, sister, it's just, mother, it's just, a, it's just a lot. And she said, oh, my dear, it's always a lot when you love the Lord. And I just like felt this wall come crashing down, like all this fear about like what's going to happen and is she going to go all the way, as it were, and like are we going to lose her forever? Is she going to end up in Timbuktu? That hopefully they never go there. I mean, whatever the Lord provides, but please know. But like... And I'm like, all of this processing in this moment. And she said, Katie, I just want you to know. And she said it so tenderly, like I can still hear it in my ears. She said, I just want you to know that the Lord has nothing but good for you. The Lord has nothing but good for you. And I think that's the thing every single one of us needs to hear deep within our soul. The Lord has nothing 
but good for you. And the way that we receive that good is by just allowing ourselves to receive it. And in receiving it, admit that we need him and that he longs for us. That's why we're here tonight. That's why I drove from Lake Charles today as missed bedtime with my kiddos so that I could tell you that because it can change the lives of every single person in this room, can change our world. That if we know that the Lord wants nothing but the good of his heart for the good of your heart, then we live like that in this existence. We live like that in this world. We can love one another better. We can serve our families more joyfully. We can allow ourselves to be loved more freely. We can say yes to what we need to say yes to. We can say no when we need to say no. We can be welcomed closer to the heart of the Lord who longs to love us as daughter, give us strength to love one another as sister so that we can heal the world as mothers. The Lord wants nothing but his good for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for the willingness of these women to show up, to be present, to open their hearts to your goodness. I ask that you give them a posture of peace and openness, that they may enter into this time of worship knowing fully that you love them and you want nothing but the good for them. Mother Mary, wrap them in your mantle. Show them what it means to say yes to the love of the Lord, that it bears fruit in this world in such a beautiful and unique way. And let us grow closer to the heart of your son, the heart that beats for us, the heart that bled for us, the heart that loves us.